Good morning. Again, my name is Rick Hedger. Uh, I was born and raised in DeSoto, Missouri, actually in the home. The doctor, Russell Pierce, came up to the house for my older brother, who's 11 months older than me, for his birth, for mine then 11 months later, and then for my younger brother, Rusty. We are Randy, Ricky, and Rusty. That's because we're Charles, Gary, and John, but my mom had three brothers, and they were named Charles, Gary, and John. And her father died, and so my mom and dad finished raising her brothers in the house. So we couldn't be called Charles, Gary, and John. We had to go by our middle name. And so I'm Rick. I've always been Rick. That's what I go by. If you say Gary, I probably will not answer. I grew up in in DeSoto, Missouri. My family went to a United Methodist Church, and in that United Methodist Church, we would go to Sunday school. I remember so clearly, still in my mind, the pictures, the Bible pictures from inside the Bible that would be up on the wall, and I would see those in Sunday school, and my my mind and my heart would be so captive to that, I knew there was something drawing me. All there was in the United Methodist Church that I attended there in DeSoto, Missouri, was when you reached a certain age, approaching 12, you got to go through a class of catechism where you were asked questions and you would learn the answers and you would quote the answers back to them. And I'm pretty smart, I think, and I got all the answers right. And when I was 12, I got to join the church. Nobody else in my family did. So I remember wearing the little white robe when I was 12 years old, coming down to the front of the church, kneeling and taking communion for the very first time, standing in the back, still in that little white robe after the service was all over, and everybody coming by and shaking my hand and telling me how happy they were for me. And inside I thought, for what? I had no idea. Nothing had happened internally in my heart, in my soul, in my spirit. I knew God was real. I just, I just don't ever remember questioning whether God was real. Went on through junior high. I was 16 years old. My dad came to faith in Christ. He was a carpenter, and he had a carpenter's temper. And everybody in the job knew that. And my dad had a specific, unique language that we were never allowed to use. But when he got saved, his life was so transformed and so changed, I didn't know my dad. I didn't know what was happening. About two years had gone by in that process, and they wanted me, that was in a Christian church, they wanted me to be baptized because that's what they were saying saved you. And so I went forward in an invitation, and I said, yes, I'll be baptized because I'm a compliant nature. I wasn't the rebellious boy. I was a compliant. That's what they wanted. I had long hair. And after being baptized, I stood in front and it was wet. And everybody came by and shook my hand and told me how happy they were for me. And it was when I was 12 years old all over again. I thought, for what? I got wet. See, I was doing what others wanted me to do because I was a compliant spirit. I did not want to be seen 
like my older brother, the rebellious son. In that process, I went through as a member of the church, joined the church, went to college. I, I was really running hard, went through my first year of junior college, went through my second year of junior college. I was a trumpet player. I just wanted to be a professional jazz trumpet player with my life at that time. That's all I wanted, but I wanted to stay there, and I didn't leave after two years. So I was in my third year at that junior college, and somebody graduated from high school early. A year early, because her high school was too full. And they were looking for people who had their credits. She had her credits already, so she came to college when she was still 16 years of age. And she was a music major, and I was a music major, and we connected. And I knew her older brother, his name was Rick, my name's Rick, and we were pretty close friends in the college. He never told me he had a little sister. But I knew Rick, and Rick had surrendered to preach, and he was going to be ordained. And so I went out and, and had lunch with them, went to church with them, saw his ordination service, and Sandy and I have been back together the entire time as a result of that. But every time we were together, before I left to go home, Sandy would say, it's time for you to go home. It's either her turn to pray or my turn to pray. Because I had religion, I could talk to God. It's not that I didn't believe in God. I just didn't know him yet. Do you understand what I mean? I, 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 I knew church. I knew God and I would pray, and she would pray, and I'd pray, and she would pray, coming back and forth every other time together. This one night, January 1978, she said, Rick, it's time for you to go. It's your turn to pray. Now, I had already been going out on church visitation on Monday night, sharing the gospel three times. I learned the plan of salvation. I would go with a team. I would go through sharing the plan of salvation and see teenagers come to faith in Christ. I was almost 21. I was 20, but almost 21. I could do that. I had done that, done that, done that. You know what happens when you're not saved and you're doing that? The Holy Spirit just begins working within your heart and within your mind. And he was working in mind. And so this Tuesday night, January 10th, 1978, the snowstorm had come. And so college was canceled. And so I drove through the snow to go see Sandy. And that night when she said, it's time for you to go, it's your turn to pray I just began to sob. Sitting there on the couch, she said, what's wrong? I said, I'm lost. I need to be saved. And she softly said, I thought so. I asked her to get her dad. So she went in and got her dad up to come sit, who was the pastor, to come sit on the couch by me. And he said, Rick, what's wrong? I was still crying. I said, I'm lost. I want to be saved. He said, do you know what to do? I said, yes. He said, then just do it. Don't get in the way if they know what to do. I bowed my head between my knees. I could do it then. <laughs> and I began to sob and say, God, I don't want to go to hell. God, please don't send me to hell. God, you said in your Bible, I've sinned against you. And I said, God, I know I've sinned against you. But God, you also said you sent your son Jesus to die on the cross to forgive me of my sin. Jesus, please forgive me of my sin. Come into my life. Change my life. Make my life count for you. Be my Lord and Savior. And it was immediately like a ton of weight lifted off my shoulders. I knew, I knew what had happened. And 
First thing I did, you know, that, that's, they didn't have these cell phone things back then. And they had these. Because my mom always expected me to be in, even though I was almost 21 years of age, by midnight, curfew. And it was already 12.15. And I wasn't home. And you didn't disobey my mom. She was a taskmaster at raising good boys. So I used a phone called Long Distance. She asked, Rick, what's wrong? I said, nothing's wrong, Mom. I just gave my heart to Jesus and everything's great. She said, you did that when you were 12 years old and joined the Methodist Church. I said, no, you don't understand, Mom. I'll talk to you later. And so I hung up. I drove home. I came out. That was Tuesday night. I came back out on Wednesday because there was Wednesday night Bible study. And I wanted to be there. And I wanted to let the church know that though they had already accepted me on a statement of faith that I'd been scripturally saved and baptized, all that was wrong. That wasn't true. And so I let them know what had happened to me on Tuesday night and asked if I could really be baptized and be a member of their church. And, of course, they said, yeah, 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 and applauded. And so Sunday morning, I was baptized. I would sit on the front row of the pew because I never wanted anybody to come kneel at the altar without somebody kneeling by them and praying with them and asking why they came so that once they told me this, this, is, this is why I came, I said, well, let me pray with you about that in just a moment. But first, and I would begin to share the gospel with them and see teenagers, men, women come to faith in Christ. It wasn't long till God stirred my heart calling me to ministry. Didn't know what that would be. I'm young in my 20s. Youth pastor. All right. Great. I was a musician. Do music. Yeah. I'll do the youth choir and and do that. But in that process, God never let me in alone. And he stirred my heart and called me to the pastorate. Sandy and I just had just been married. We had a uh, 14 by 70 mobile home that we lived in and we knelt down by the couch one night and just prayed and said, God, I just know that you've called me, but I don't know how to get into this thing. How do you, how do you even get in? If there's some place you want me to serve, would you just let me know? Ring. The phone rang. Got up, answered it. It was another pastor in the same association where our church had been. They were looking for a youth minister. And God had placed me on his heart and asked if I would talk to him. I said, well, let me, let me pray about it and, and I'll get back with you. Isn't that, isn't that what you do? You want to play cool? I hung up the phone. It wasn't three minutes. Ring another pastor called, needing a minister of music and youth, and asking if I would consider doing that for their church. I said, I was just asked by somebody else. All I knew was first come, first serve. I hung up. We went to that church. God called me to preach while I was under Dr. Mike Goodwin. I was in the choir. All I knew is Sandy did not want to be married to a preacher. So I was afraid if I said God was calling me to preach, 
she would leave me, and then I couldn't. That's what the enemy does. I sat in the choir loft. I wept during the sermon. I don't know what the sermon was about. I know what God was dealing. My light blue suit turned dark blue from sweat and tears. And I went down and took Sandy's hand at the invitation time, just weeping, came and knelt at the altar. And she said, what's wrong? I said, God's called me to preach. And she said, then God's called me to be a pastor's wife. And the rest is history. The education, the serving in churches. The, the, the beautiful thing is God has always given me from the beginning a heart to see lost people saved. Whether it's in Missouri, where I was born and raised. Whether it was in Illinois. Whether it was in Arkansas. Whether it was in Texas. Whether it was in Minnesota, Wisconsin. I just want to see people saved. And we had this big mission conference. Had Jerry Rankin, then the president of the convention. He came and he to our church where I was pastoring at that time. And Randy Arnett just showed up. He was over 22 countries of West Africa region for IMB. And he wanted to see me Monday morning. Came into the office. And he and his wife and Sandy and I were sitting there. And they said this was when they were going to have the big deal in 2005. And they wanted me to come. He had never heard me preach. But he believed God wanted me to come speak to their missionaries. 450 of them gathered in one location in Africa. They sat me on a chair. He had this idea that a local church become the missionaries to an unreached, unengaged people. Okay, I'm just a yes type guy. And so in that process, we began praying. And he asked if, if I would come. And then his wife asked, Sandy, Sandy said yes. I said yes. We went to that. In that process, we began to pray, ask God, God, I don't have a clue. This is water way over my head. Who do you want us to be the missionaries to? Working through IMB, but not IMB. It was a people group that needed to be reached for Christ. God paired us up with the Manjaku people. Our first trip over was in, in January of, of 06. And there were four of us who went. One of them had been a missionary with IMB in Kenya for 25 years. And so I figured I have somebody to help us in this process of, of doing this mission work. And he just stayed quiet, encouraged me, and grinned and laughed with me. And he was very jolly and put me out there. And all I knew was to tell the story of creation to the church in orality through a translator. God led me, though I didn't know what to do to do it. That first trip, that first week when we were trying to figure out what village we needed to go to, what people we needed to talk to, who the Manjaku were. I had 22 come to faith in Christ. I got back home. We planned our next trip three months later. And I took others with me. We went in. And while I was there, we saw 25 more come to faith in Christ. Went back a third time that same year. Four of us on our small team going. 
One lady sitting underneath a mango tree came in. The men weren't there that I had shared the gospel with who were saved. But underneath this mango tree, four ladies were sitting there. This one lady asked through the translator, why had we come? What was I to do? Why have we come? I have a story I want to tell you. They wanted to hear it. So I shared the gospel. She heard, I affectionately called her mama. She got so excited that she stood up, jumped up, and began to just dance around, dance around, dance around. I stopped her, tears flowing down her face. I stopped her and said, Mama, why are you so excited? And she looked at me in the eyes and said, you've just told me the most wonderful news in all the world. That God has forgiven me of my sin. Why wouldn't I be excited? She said, can you stay and tell us more? We Americans have schedules, don't we? We're not like Africans that... Whatever is ever. So I, I, I've got to go somewhere. I said, this is Monday. I've got to go here. I'll be back here on Thursday. So if you invite your friends, your neighbors to come sit underneath this mango tree, we will be back at 1030 a.m. When you tell an African time, what does it mean? Nothing. It doesn't. But we got there at 10 o'clock and she had 72 people sitting underneath that mango tree all dressed up in their most colorful garments that they had. I asked her, Mama, why, why, are they all, why are they all dressed up? She said, they're here to hear about the living God. So I told them the story. 42 of the 72 chose to follow Jesus with their life. And that village started a church. We, as a local church, became the missionaries to the Manjaku people in Senegal, Gambia, and Guinea-Bissau. And we would send volunteer teams. And we'd work out the schedule with the church here with the time change of when we would be in the villages when we're going to be talking and sharing the gospel so that at the altar in our church... They would be there praying at the American time of our time that we were going to be there. So it was right at the time when we were going to be in the village. So I knew I always had the prayer covering of the church. I would not dare go do it without my church praying for me. Today, there are 122 churches among the Manjaku people. The synagogue, Gambia, and Guinea-Bissau. And people were saying... There's no way a local church could be the missionary to an unreached, unengaged people. Well, you just don't tell a hedger it can't happen. God showed off. A people began to be reached. God was doing it. God was doing that process. It was during all that process that God called me to come to state convention work. This was this local church. But what could happen if I began to work with 1,700 churches in Missouri? But God took me out of Missouri and took me to Illinois. And in Illinois, I served on their state convention. And I was helping reach their 190-something churches. But they never let me go anywhere. 
That was a long year. I could go around in the state, but no provision to go internationally. And then Missouri Baptist Convention called me and said the person who was in this role that I'm now in was leaving. Would I come to Missouri? I said, let me pray about it. Yes. So now we've been at Missouri Baptist Convention for 15 years. And in that 15 years, we've been taking individuals to West Africa. We've been taking them up into Canada. We've been taking them over to Italy and France. Uh, We've been going in in South America. We've been going in Puebla and Tlaxcala, Mexico. And we have a partnership there. And we take churches down there to share the gospel, to see people come to faith in Christ. One pastor went with this size of, you know the Evangel Cube? The little evangel. He had me get him one of these full size so he could teach them. And we sent we sent with him 120 little evangel cubes. He shared how to share it with them and then sent them out on Saturday to the town squares, the Zocalos as they called them. They saw 145 come. They, the Hispanics, who just learned how to share the gospel with the evangel cube saw 147 people come to faith in Christ. I want you to know, everything that we do as a local church, everything we do needs to somehow, it's caring for people, but the caring for the people is ultimately to see them, get, get the opportunity to build the relationship so that we can share the gospel so that they can hear it, believe, and say yes to Jesus. That's why your church is here in Libby. You are here, not just for the great worship you just were a part of, or messages that you hear from, from your pastor or whatever. God has you here, every one of you, in this church as missionaries to this community. And anywhere else, God takes you back to Africa. If you get to go back there. But the thing is, we can go, but if we don't share his story, There's no power in what we're doing. Because the power is the power of the Holy Spirit working through us and sharing the message of His Word into somebody else's heart. And if we're praying ahead of time, and the church right here is still praying for the team that goes, what's going to happen is the Spirit of God from here is going to listen to you and answer your prayer over there. And their hearts are going to be exploding, wanting to say yes. They just don't know what to do That's why your volunteer team gets to go. Because you get to share with them how they can receive Jesus and how they can become the church. And you get to tell them the stories and another story and another story and another story. Because I want you to know their whole life is telling stories in Senegal, Africa. They hear a story. They tell their entire history with stories, orality. Would that work somewhere in the United States? Mm, Not as well as in Africa. Because we are literate. We read. There, everything is by listening and committing to memory the story. And they tell the story again and again and again. What's that story? 
Let me read this passage of Scripture for you. It's found in, chap- in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. What, I, what I'm telling you and asking you to do is something somebody else did. Verse 35 of chapter 9, Gospel of Matthew. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful. In Arkansas, I think they use the word bukus. It's plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. You see, we don't send laborers out. He, the Lord of the harvest, sends out laborers. He, took, he, he brings a burden upon your heart. I had a 65-year-old pianist. And on one trip, I just felt compelled. I was supposed to ask her to go. I, I would always tell the church, do not come up to me. Do not tell me you want to go. Because I'll tell you no. I want to hear from God. Because if I hear from God and ask you and you say no... Okay, I could have missed God. But if you come to me and tell, you, tell me you want to go, it may be for the trip. It may be for the experience. But is it, are you the one God wants you to go? In that process, she, I met her in the hallway, and her husband was with her. He was a deacon in the church. He never wanted to go on a mission trip. They had never been. When she was an 11-year-old girl, when, when, I, when I asked her if she would go, She began to sob and fell to the floor. And I helped her up. And her husband helped her up. And I just said, why why are you crying so much? She said, when I was 11 years old, God spoke in my heart and told me I was supposed to go be a missionary. And I never did anything about it. And then I got married. And when the stirring would come, my husband would always say, no. I'm not leaving here. But now you're asking me to go on this week-long mission trip to Africa. She had a blast. I didn't know all that history. But when you pray, Pastor, for your people, not even knowing what all the backstory is... What this is about, missions is not just about your pastor. Missions is about God. It's about Jesus. It's about his Holy Spirit. It's what he's doing in each one of your lives. It's how he's moved and worked. Just like I tried to tell you my story briefly, skipping the rock. You all have a story. You all have a story where God has worked or spoke something to where your heart just beat it a little bit faster than before maybe you said yes maybe you thought if I just wait that will slow back down 
when Jesus, going throughout all the cities and all the villages, he was teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, do you think Jesus sees the crowds today? From heaven, from sitting or standing at the right hand of God the Father, he sees the masses, the crowds still. When he saw the crowds, he had this compassion. The word is this deep, gut-rending sensation. He had this compassion for them because they were, what are those words? Harassed? Think life ever harasses somebody? Think the enemy ever harasses them? Yes. They were harassed and helpless. They could do nothing about it. They were like sheep without a shepherd. I'm not sure I've seen seen sheep up here in Montana. Are the sheep in Montana? Yeah, some. If they're left without a shepherd guarding them, they go nuts. They scatter. But they like the crowd. So if one starts running, the rest of them start running. If the one runs off a cliff, they're going to all run off the cliff. That's why they need the shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. Verse 37. So this is what Jesus said. Then he said to his disciples. Who here is a disciple of Jesus? So he's saying that to us today. He's continuously saying this. The harvest. Is. Plentiful. It's overflowing. All over Libby. All over Montana. All over Missouri. All over New Orleans. All over the United States. All over Canada. All over the world. The harvest is plentiful. But the laborers are few. There are a lot of definitions to this word that's translated few here. We think of few as not enough. It's just, there's just so few out there to get the job done based upon the world's population and how rapidly they begin to die off without Christ to an eternal hell. But the laborers are few. You know what the very first word in the definition of the Greek dictionary for few? Puny. Sometimes the harvesters are just... You ever felt under the weather? Puny? 
I'm just not up to it. I'm just not, I'm just not feeling it. When he's saying the harvest is, the labors are few, it begins with, maybe they're not healthy. Can't stay on the field very long. Maybe they're just serving in West Africa somewhere and malaria sets in. And you know, they just don't feel up to snuff. You know what I mean by that phrase? They're just not, they're just not, they're not on the top of their game. Local churches can be that way too, right? I mean, you're missionaries here in Libby. Now, God may take you on mission trips someplace else, or he may call you to the mission field. And if he does, he will provide things for you. But he said, pray to the Lord of the harvest, earnestly to the Lord of the harvest, to do what? Pray earnestly, pleading with him. God, will you? We had three foot high stage at Calvary of Neosha where I was. And there were stairs down the front, and then we had the kneeling benches over on the side. And on Tuesday night, the men would gather with me, the older men would gather with me on Tuesday night. The younger men were helping their wife get their children in bed. So, but the older men would meet with me, and we would kneel, and we would just begin to plead with God. That God would call out individuals from our church to go serve or anywhere else to go serve on his mission field. Wherever he wants them to go. We prayed for that. Every offering time that was being taken, we we took it out of the standard, God bless this offering, blah, 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 blah. We would show from IMB on the screen, here's a story of a missionary and what's happening. And then we would pray for that missionary. Then we'd receive the offering. I just think, if we see it, God grips our heart. We'll give. Even if we can't go, we'll give until we can go. The older men would would meet and we would kneel together and we would pray. That was on Tuesday night. That would go from 7 till about 10 o'clock. I'd get back at 6 a.m. The younger men... They're getting up. They're going to go to work. They get up earlier. They would meet me on the floor. We would lay on the floor. Hand to hand. hand like, like skydivers coming out. You see them holding hands. We, we would lay there. And we would plead with God to call out individuals from Calvary of Neosho where I was pastoring. To send them to the mission field. Now, when he starts doing it, sometimes you begin to have second because he takes the best. But that's okay. They're not mine. You're his. And if he wants you to go somewhere else, just to go and come, go and come, or go for three months, or go for a year, or go for two years, go as a journeyman or something, whatever. Maybe he wants you to go and to stay a while somewhere around the world to reach a people. 3,000 unreached, unengaged peoples still around the world.
But you know what we've discovered in Missouri is we're doing all the research of the population who's come to live within the borders of the state of Missouri, the nations that God has brought into Missouri. And of those 3,000 unreached, unengaged, 20 of them are in Missouri. They're in Missouri. We can't go there because many of them are closed countries. But they've come to Missouri, so we're getting our churches to be missionaries in Missouri. To begin to reach the peoples that God has brought to our doorsteps. Because of wars in Ukraine and Russia or someplace else. And God, they they are leaving their country. They are seeking refuge in the United States. And they're here. And we can tell them the story. Tell me the story of Jesus. Write every word on my heart. Tell me the story most precious. You can sing louder. Tell, tell me the story. Tell them the story. Tell them the story. You're not just nice people. I hope you're nice people. But you're just not nice people. You are missionaries. God has handpicked and called you out from humanity to be his And left you here or brought you here and gave you jobs for here so that you can be his missionaries here to the peoples who are here or across Montana or maybe across an ocean or a border. Pray to the Lord the harvest. You pray to the Lord, Jesus, the Lord of the harvest, asking him, pleading with him to send out missionaries among the peoples.